0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. How are you, Octavia?
1: Hi Carrie. I am bronzed and beautiful because I just got back from a week in Marseille in the south of France, and I am slightly devastated to be back in England, but (laughs) (laughs) I am also full of the joys of the Mediterranean Sea and just being somewhere else, and it's such a phenomenal city. So you know, I ate beautiful food, and I bathed in the sun, and I bathed in the sea, and I saw some stimulating things, and yeah, it was wonderful. How about you?
0: Well, I am also back from France, I'm also very <laughs> <So> I
1: know,
0: <laughs> very upset about the state of England right now. It's oh God,
1: not, it's not great. It's not the place to be. Let me tell you.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> France was great. I was in the Dordogne Valley. I went to a local fete. I ate chocolate-covered walnuts, I mean, and lots of delicious produce. It was, it's really a nice place to be in the summer, I have to say.
1: Yeah, France in the summer is pretty spectacular. But anyway. Before we get into it, let's get business out of the way, as we like to do. So if you would like to, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra minisode each month. There are now 30 waiting for you there, and have the chance to suggest themes for us to talk about. But now, back to
0: minisode 42, and thanks for tuning in. The format for these mini-sodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we have enjoyed lately that are not books.
1: That's right. And today, our theme was suggested by our patron, Elise, who asked us to talk about ChatGPT in particular. Um, And we thought that that was a great jumping off point, actually, for a much bigger conversation about the intersection between technology and art, about the moral panic that always accompanies developments in artificial intelligence and technology more generally, and about our relationship to these things. So, as usual, a massive topic. This is definitely just the start of a much bigger ongoing conversation, but I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this because I feel like I have a good sense of what you're going to say, but I imagine there'll be things in there that will surprise me too. So let's start with the basics. Carrie Plitt, what is your relationship to technology in the most general sense?
0: In the most general sense, I would say that my relationship with technology is skeptical but begrudgingly acquiescent.
1: <laughs> I like that.
0: <laughs> and what I mean by that is that I am never an early adopter of new technology. I often find myself wishing that we still lived in a time without things like emails or mobile phones. I've complained about emails many times on the show before. Mm -hmm. My greatest pleasures in life are often things that are switched off from tech, So being outside in nature, reading, playing sports, looking at art. And I'm sure part of this is because I am not technically gifted. <laughs> I'm trying to troubleshoot or fix anything techy really freaks me out. Although doing the podcast, I have to say, has really helped on that front and helped me get over fears and just have to learn.
1: You are also incredibly like cool-headed when we have technical meltdowns. I mean, if you, like if you consider yourself not technically adept, what do you think of me? <laughs>
0: Well, I guess I'm just panicking on the inside. Right. Maybe, maybe it's good that you're just, you know, you're, you are what you are on the surface. I externalize my panic at (laughs) all (laughs) times. But, you know, at the same time, and what I mean by begrudgingly acquiescent is that I am totally relying on technology. And I think it would be hilarious to suggest otherwise, you know, I, I use my phone for everything. It's not like I'm trying to use it less or, or doing other things. Um, you know I and I really enjoy a lot of those things that my phone gives me so you know maps maps on my phone have saved my life directions I love the convenience of apple pay I enjoy texting a lot plus I co-host this podcast that you know would would really be impossible without technological advances in the last 10 years I mean mm-hmm. we just could not do this without technology so I can't say that I don't use or benefit from it and I think some of that skepticism is sometimes unthinking about how many of the ways that technology has really improved my life. So that's where I end up when I think about this stuff. How about you? I know we know we have a little teaser of how you feel about when (laughs) things (laughs) melt (laughs) down.
1: Yeah, but I think I'm really pleased that you talked about pleasure as well, because there is a lot of technology that brings me a deep amount of pleasure, even though I am truly an analog girl at heart and in some incredibly fundamental ways. And like, you know, one of the things that, that comes up a lot between us is like, I don't use digital diaries. I I use a, a, a pen and paper yes. to write my schedule. And that so does come up. it comes <laughs> up <laughs> frequently in my life because I don't always have my diary with me. And actually this is another way that it allows me to sometimes exist outside of time, which is important to me to do because it's how I cope with kind of overwhelm. Didn't you once lose your diary and you just had no
0: idea any of the plans that you'd made?
1: Edinburgh last summer, it was was awful. I lost it on the train (laughs) to the festival and I just got there and was like, holy fucking shit. No, I lost it. When I'd been there, yeah, it was on the train. That's right. And I didn't know where I was going. And I had to put messages on all my social media being like, if you have any plans with me in the next three weeks, you have to tell me. (laughs) And then there was this heartbreaking moment where the lost property at the station was like, we found it. And I ran to Edinburgh Waverley and got there and it was a different notebook. And it was just so heartbreaking. And anyway, the whole thing, it was a a big intense moment. But the thing is, if I don't write with a pen, that i have to do something it doesn't exist for me and it's it's really interesting because obviously i work on my laptop all the time i use my computer in a thousand ways every day there is never a day when i'm not on my computer for some reason or other right when i'm at when i'm working but even with my writing you know when i'm writing a book or when i was writing academically even when i'm writing journalistically there's always a moment where i have to print everything out and i have to look at it you know on the floor and I have to write on it with, with a pen or if it's a bigger project, I have to cut it all up and move it around physically and be tactile with it because I cannot make shapes of thoughts on a screen at all. But then there are other ways where I feel truly quite digitally native. Like I've used various forms of social media since their inception. So, you know, the I th- what I find interesting about technology is how it shapes the way you think and the way you see the world. And if you've been on Instagram for God knows 15 years, you start to see the world in terms of images or image production of a particular kind. Or, you know, if you're on Twitter, without you even noticing, you will start to think about status updates. And I think there's a kind of poetry to that. It, it's also very sad and very fucked up. But I don't think we should be exclusively negative about these technologies. And I think that there is this kind of amazing way that they have democratized so many different things. And so I feel complicatedly about them, right? I feel in some ways, it's quite a classically millennial perspective because we're that generation that lived without most of these things for, well, if we're in our late thirties, just under half of our lives so far. So we've almost transitioned into the phase of life where we will have been living with these technologies longer than we lived without them. Mm. But we straddle this analog and then digital way of moving through the world. And so for our generation, I think there will always be a tension between those things. I would really love to spend more time with over a meter's distance between me and my phone. (laughs) But it so rarely happens. I so rarely don't have my phone within arm's reach. Same. And that that is a tragedy, I think. But also, if you have responsibilities beyond yourself, that's never going to change. And, you know, my parents have been ill. And, and if we have kids in our lives, that's the big shift. So I think there's no escaping that, probably.
0: I think what I've learned from this is that we are the most
1: qualified people to talk about <laughs> artificial intelligence. Well, listen, I live with someone who basically works in artificial intelligence in a, in some sort of way. It's interesting when you think about video games and the intelligent systems that they create. But before we get into any of that, would you say that you were a techno-optimist or a techno-pessimist or just a, a Luddite? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I told I did self define as a luddite the other day, and somebody was like, "But like, is there any technology you don't use because you're against it?" And I was like, "No, right? <laughs> so Maybe I don't think TikTok. I don't know. I guess so. I'm not. I, I have a TikTok again. I don't use it, but I do. Oh my god!
1: It. Actually, you are on so many more of the social media yeah, than me I am. You real so. baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's my new favorite. Anyway, but on balance, so I'm not a Luddite. I think I am a techno-pessimist, though. And I mistrust a lot of things about new technology. I'm not necessarily even saying this is a good thing, but what I do mistrust are things like surveillance, data collection, the attention economy... And I really don't buy into the idea that problems can be fixed just with new technology. And I, and I actually find that idea really insidious, especially when it comes to something like climate change. And I have heard people say, oh, I'm sure we'll figure out a way to deal with it, with technology. Yeah, and
1: you're like, no, no, this needs system change. Like this needs like from the bottom to the top change. Exactly. Yeah. And
0: I do worry that like, you know, some libertarian and fascist tech billionaires are some of the most powerful people on earth right now. (laughs) (laughs) Elon Musk. But, and I I don't think they're going to lead us in the right direction. But at the same time, I think technology has a lot of potential for good. And it really depends on how it's developed and what for and who is in control of it. I also think what we think about as technology doesn't take into account what technology actually is. Sometimes like, We're thinking about like the internet and mobile phones, but actually, like you know, the telephone was technology at some point, but it's totally integrated, or even the printing press. You know, and people were panicking about the printing press when it was first, you know, brought in. So, I and I, I really don't think those things are bad. I think they've been on a net good for humanity. But at the moment, most of our tech is developed in the service of of capitalism or for making money, and that's where a lot of the problems come in. So I think tech is actually kind of neutral, but it's it's about what it's for that worries me. And that's what makes me pessimistic. I don't know. How about you?
1: No, I totally hear you on that. And like, it, the interesting thing is the definition of the word technology is just the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes. So it's Amazing. actually- it was smart
0: to look up the definition.
1: I know. It's normally a carry blip move. I, I looked it up because I was like, I wanted to know actually because we use it, like you said, we use it to refer to kind of electronic goods <laughs> and then what they en- enable us to do. But it's actually this hugely broad thing. And like in academia, people are always talking about technologies in a much more kind of philosophical context, basically. And I think it's really important to bring that back into the equation. So I I actually think I'm a techno-optimist. Oh, okay. Um,
0: I, d- I don't know that I expected that. I'm yeah,
1: i I am but I I don't consider myself hugely plugged into technological developments but I when I take technology to mean the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes I am hugely optimistic about it and I think everything you said about the way that capitalism kind of co-opts it and and b- makes it become a negative force because of course it becomes obsessed with profit margins and and making money rather than in applying scientific knowledge for practical purposes to like <laughs> develop whatever the thing it's dealing with is, right? Because, you know, something like the dialysis machine is a technology, chemotherapy is a technology, keyhole surgery is a technology. These are all things that have involved digital advancements, and but they're not contained within a machine and they're not artificial intelligence, but they are technologies and they are life-saving technologies and they've completely changed what's possible within the realm of medicine, let's say that the examples I've used, but I also think that at the heart of technological progress is this powerfully democratizing spirit. So you mentioned the printing press being a new technology. The reason people freaked out about the printing press was that it was going to destabilize structures of power that had Mm. a grip on what information was passed out when, like the church. (laughs) (laughs) And like, look at what the printing press has brought us and we've got a long way to go before we fully democratize education and fully democratize access to information but the internet which is the you know a comparable arrival to the printing press in terms of what it made possible when you think about volume of people numbers of people who could suddenly access a piece of information that was previously hidden is is phenomenal and something to be phenomenally optimistic about so I think it's complicated because, of course, the capitalists are going to get rich off this stuff. Of course, they're going to be the people who find a way to harness the new technologies in order to increase their personal wealth. And as you say, they tend to be fascistic and they are absolutely not to be trusted. But they're not the innovators who are creating the products. And working with them are the scientists, the designers, the engineers, et cetera, who are working insanely hard to solve whatever the problem in question is. Like I'm thinking about people who are working like DeepMind, for example, or like people who are working at Tesla who are genuinely invested in coming up with electric vehicles that mean we can cut back on the use of fossil fuels. I don't think Elon Musk gives a fuck about that, but I think they give a fuck about that. And they've had to make this slight deal with the devil to work for this monster. Because it's the only way that they're going to make progress. I mean, that maybe that's naive of me to say, and maybe they're all wankers also. But I have to believe that they're not. Um, so I think that, like, whether the problem in question is like how to cure a particular disease, or for example, like how to develop an electric wheelchair that can be operated by an iPad, like my my young friend Ned has, and and it's like completely changed his life because of what he's now able to do for himself. That's all all based around technology or even things like the development of hands-free home systems, which like when my father was in a nursing home, they used Alexa all the time. And it was absolutely revolutionary for them because all the carers and nurses are constantly holding so many things Mm. and to adjust people's temperature systems in their rooms and things like that. And hands-free way is like, for them, it totally changes their working life. For me at home, I don't have an Alexa because it freaks me the fuck out. But you know, that doesn't make me, I'm not pessimistic about, About it entirely because I've seen how useful it is in certain contexts. So I think this is why I would say I'm overall a techno optimist, even though I don't welcome these technologies into my personal life at the moment.
0: There is a kind of prepper part of me that's like, the grid's going to go down one day and nothing will exist. You know? Yeah. Like, I want tangible things. I kind of hate that everything is in the cloud.
1: Yeah. It wiggles me out too. But what's interesting is I don't have a prepper response to it. I have a like, fuck it (laughs) in response to it. And like, when everything goes down, it's going to be insane. And we'll just, that's what we'll be going through. (laughs) Like I have no instinct to be prepared for it more than I'm just like, what is that going to be like? That is going to be wild.
0: Like, let's do it. I say that I have done no preparation whatsoever, (laughs) but
1: I worry. (laughs) So talking of worry, like moral panics, about artificial intelligence are like old as the hills as we've kind of touched upon but I think that we're in an interesting moment for moral panic around AI with the rise of chat GPT which is of course what what our patron first asked us to talk about so do you feel morally panicked about chat GPT about AI in general?
0: I love that question. Do you feel morally panicked? <laughs> I do feel a little panicked, but is it morally? I don't know. I must begin by saying that I'm I'm a total non-expert. So, you know, I feel like I just don't know enough to have a really strong opinion about this, which I think is a good place to be, actually. But as far as I understand it, AI is, like other forms of technology, a tool. And it's, and it's not poised to take over all human jobs and our creation. You know, it is made to aid us in doing tasks and make our lives easier, especially tasks that are time-consuming or difficult to do. And, you know, it seems to be coming and I can see the ways it could really, really benefit us. At the same time, I do worry about the uses of AI and the potential ways, like going back to my previous point, it could exploit people in an unfair system. And, you know, if we build machines that can replace humans, but don't build a system that ensures human equality or, or or equity, or at least strives towards it, then we failed. And that is a little bit scary. You know, it's being introduced into a very unequal world when, you know, people have to work for their livelihoods. I've been thinking about this particularly from the perspective of artist work and Authors' work because it's something we're talking about in the industry, and I don't think that AI is going to write a novel and put an author out of a job. Maybe a really, really formulaic, super commercial novel, but even then, I think you know the reason we go to art and the reason we go to stories is partially about the creativity and the unexpected, and that's not really, as far as I understand it, what AI is doing or or why we're interested in art. But, you know, we're currently thinking about things like protecting copyright, which is totally essential for authors to to make money and continue to make money from their work. And scenarios where, for instance, authors' works would be used to train AI for the purpose of, like, updating a book or writing something in the author's voice, which of course would mean that the author doesn't have to get paid again. So that's a little bit scary. And I think that's something we really need to be mindful of. Also, there's all this stuff. That's coming out in the actor strike that's happening in America right now where, you know, studios, as far as I've heard, have proposed things like, you know, having clauses in their contract where they can use the likeness of an actor in post-production, which, of course, actors used to get paid for reshoots and do get paid for reshoots. So what what's going to happen with that? Mm. So, sorry, that's a long answer, but that that's that's how I feel. How about you?
1: Yeah, I mean all of that really wigs me out as well and I think you put it perfectly actually. I do think it's funny to think about whether the panic people are feeling is rooted in morality, right? Like is it a moral panic or is it just a panic? I don't know. I like I'm fascinated to see that with the conversations around this stuff that are picking up pace currently, more and more people are are being forced to ask these big philosophical questions like what is consciousness and what is intelligence and how do we relate to entities that maybe are developing a form of consciousness or a form of intelligence, like as AI becomes a bigger part of our lives and as artificial intelligence specifically becomes more sophisticated, like these are very good and very important questions to ask because they make us reflect on our own relationship to those things, which is one of dominance and enslavement, if you stop to think about it for very long. And I think that the, the, the legal side of it, as you were describing the legal side of it that can protect Humans, but I think also the legal side of it that can protect artificial intelligence, like I'm, I'm blown my mind,
0: Octavia. I'm, sorry.
1: <laughs> but I'm 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 curious to see how it will shake out. I think it will take a lot of hashing out. I think there will be have to be some massive errors. There will probably be some colossal legal cases before it settles into a system that makes sense because it is a shifting playing field. We simply don't know what we're dealing with yet. And everyone's freaked out. Like, I definitely feel fear around the idea of a hyper-developed artificial intelligence and the classic narrative of, I guess, learning how to outsmart human beings, which, you know, has been a story in sci-fi movies and novels for 50 years or whatever. But I'm also hyper-aware that, as you said earlier, like new technologies, they just always inspire new waves of panic and fear because we're ignorant and we don't understand. So I think I think you always have to check yourself in your fear and anxiety as well and check the kind of assumptions that you might be making. And I'm really, really interested in flipping the ethical question the other way. So what are our ethical responsibilities towards these creations? It's all the questions that are at the heart of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? You create a form of intelligence in order to serve you. <laughs> that is an ethically complicated question thing to do and I think it's important to consider the effects in the other direction because I think that something happens to a to the human spirit when it feels dominant over other intelligent beings and you see it in people's relationship to animals sometimes and obviously with the history of slavery and some of the darkest sort of parts of our history so even if the intelligence is automated I think that the fact of feeling dominant over something that feels like it has a comparable intelligence to you has an effect on you, and that's something we need to be thinking about. but like if we're thinking about chat GPT in particular, so this is like a, a technology that has sent a lot of people connected to writing and thinking, right? Like educators, writers, publishers, et etc. Like, into a tailspin. Let's be frank, and I wonder if you in particular have strong feelings about it and whether you have strong feelings about the relationship between art and technology in a more general sense.
0: I don't have super strong feelings about ChatGPT. I would say I've played around with it. I haven't really introduced it into my life much and I'm I'm not using it, for instance, to help me do anything. My main relationship with it has actually come through my father who (laughs) got so excited about it when they released it. And I i was like visiting my parents and he kept being like, just ask it something, just ask it.
1: <laughs> <That's> so <laughs> it cute, so
0: nice. And then, and then we would ask it something and he'd be like, that is amazing, amazing. And it is kind of amazing what it can do. But I guess I do see the worry with stuff like plagiarism, you know, school assignments. And, you know, I'm hoping there's a way to control for that in some way. And I do remember similar fears about things like Sparknotes and Wikipedia when I was at school. So I, I don't know. I, I guess that's not a very conclusive answer. But in terms of the relationship between art and technology more generally, I think that a lot of great art doesn't really resist or stand apart from technology, but engages with it and thinks through it in the way that you know philosophers do. And, you know, not all all art does this, but I thought, a, I think a lot of great art does. I'm thinking of like Sally Rooney and how brilliantly she incorporates new forms of communicating into her fiction or artists like Annika Yi, whose wonderful Turbine Hall installation at the Tate, which was called In Love with the World, featured these strange floating machines that piloted themselves and kind of changed according to temperature. And then they looked like these kind of mechanical jellyfish and they were deeply moving and i think you know raised a lot of these questions through art about what what intelligence means and what it is in our relationship with with machines and technology so i think we're going to need art like this to understand artificial intelligence and chat gpt and all of the ways that things are going to change
1: yeah i agree that installation was amazing
0: it really was yeah it, i i stood in it for a long time just yeah like, <laughs> Fascinated.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have to confess, I didn't pay that much attention to ChatGPT until quite recently. And then I listened to a really informative episode of This American Life about it just last month, where David Kestenbaum speaks to scientists at Microsoft about whether the program ChatGPT has got so advanced that it can already think for itself. And the short answer is yeah, definitely. And they're quite wigged out by it. And yeah, it's fascinating. I really recommend listening. But I think that like, I think that the fact that I didn't immediately pay attention to it is a sign of aging in a way that we actually need to fight against, because I think there can be a tipping point beyond which technological advancements stop feeling relevant to you because you you're set in your ways and you have the things that you use, and they work for you, and so you keep plowing that furrow. And the new developments feel like they're too much to get your head around. And if you don't have to for your job, then it's easy not to. And I think, you know, whether that feeling comes when you're 37 or 67 depends a lot on things like how tech optimistic or pessimistic you are, how much of a Luddite you are. Like my father actually he was born in 1931 and trained as a scientist, like very, very interested in technology and very, you know, in his lifetime saw the most extraordinary technological developments if you think about it from no tv to smartphones but by the time smartphones arrived he just totally noped out he was like they're technologically amazing they're fascinating i don't want one (laughs) and Mm. he was just hated how glued everyone around him became to these little screens but you and me are way too young to be noping out of anything but i think you know the question of of like ChatGPT, so I listened to this really fabulous episode of HiFi Nation podcast called Love in the Time of Replica, which explores the lives of people who are in love with their AI chatbots. And this program Replica with a K is a lot like ChatGPT and it's a bot that's designed to adapt the emotional needs of its users. And this episode is about people who use it as a surrogate for romance with, with human beings. And actually, I hesitate to even use the word surrogate because they feel what they're experiencing is a form of love. And these philosophers get into the ethical and philosophical questions around the whole thing. It's super fascinating. And as with everything, it's obviously way more nuanced than any moral panic about this kind of stuff allows for. So just a quick example. Replica the program, you know, it definitely raises complicated questions about dominance and control and consent and relational development. It also, helps a survivor of sexual violence re-engage with romance in a way that feels safe for her. And this paves the way towards her being able to reconnect with human lovers as well. So like I just don't think there's a simple answer at any point to any of it. And it's about kind of personal choice and personal boundaries, as much as one can retain those. I mean, like if we were going to bring this round to books, like are you interested in reading about tech? And I guess if we're thinking about fiction, like novels where artificial intelligence is at the heart of the plot or like non-fiction books about technology more generally yes I suppose this is a books podcast isn't it? Maybe. <laughs> maybe
0: we should, should discuss them no i I think I am interested in reading about tech but you know as always if it's if it's handled well and you know something that comes up a lot when we're talking about books is that very specific use of technology, because it moves so quickly, especially now, can really date a novel in a way that feels a little jarring. If someone's on MySpace in a novel written during that time, you're like, okay, we're not, you know, and it's not really trying to reflect on the experience of MySpace or or seeing it as something that was kind of transient. It It does feel a little silly. But I do love books that engage with some of these bigger questions that you've been talking about specifically, philosophically, about consciousness, about what intelligence really is. And I guess the immediate example that comes to mind is the novel Clara and the Sun by Kezuo Ishiguro, which in the most human way thinks through the ethical responsibilities that we have towards sentient machines. And I would really recommend it. I think it's a beautiful novel. I cried a lot at the end about a robot. But I'm interested in nonfiction about technology, too. I love Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, which is all about the attention economy. I really want to read this book, Ways of Being, by James Bridle, which is all about finding inspiration from all different forms of intelligence, including from the natural world and machines. I had to shout out the novel The Working Theory of Love by Scott Hutchins, which is also kind of about a relationship with the chatbot And in my research, I realized he was the guest with an interview that I did over Skype, speaking of old technology, on our first ever solo show in 2013, which was then (gasps) called First Edition.
1: Oh my God. Yeah.
0: And guess what the theme was? What? AI.
1: (gasps) No fucking way. (laughs) Can you
0: believe that? I totally forgot. Wow, babe. I know. Good old Skype. I don't think that show like exists anymore, <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Maybe it does, but I don't want to listen back if it does. Oh my God, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> I wonder what we said. Let's not think about it. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Do, do you like reading about technology?
1: Well, if we think about nonfiction, I think it's very telling that I have still not made it past page 80 of Shoshana Zuboff's 700-page tone, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which Sadie Smith recommended when I interviewed her. And it's not because it's not a brilliant book. It's a sociological analysis of the tech that we use every day. Um, She's looking at the way that corporations like Google and Meta have convinced us into giving up all of our data. And she's looking at the knock-on effect that this has on democracy, on personal freedom, you know, Zadie Smith is very hip to these things and doesn't have a smartphone and, and, and makes, you know, she does a very funny line and saying, we gave them our identities just for a map. And like, you've got a good point.
0: I love that map though, baby.
1: I know, you <laughs> gave up all your information for it. But yeah, this, this book is, you know, it's deeply and brilliantly researched. It's really compellingly written. And I basically know the reason I haven't got further with it is because I'm too scared to keep reading because I know it's one of those books that once you read it, you can never go back to the state you're in before you read it. And you will have to change your behavior forever. Like that's why I've stalled, not because I'm not curious, but because I'm absolutely bricking it. As for fiction, when I was looking over the various lists of novels about AI, I realized I really haven't read many of the big ones or any of the big ones. I think it's not something that appeals to me evidently as a theme, but I have enjoyed novels where it's not necessarily like the main issue, but it comes in. So like, I really, really enjoyed The Candy House by Jennifer Egan and her first novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is also actually interestingly incorporates technology. Like in that novel, there was a chapter written in text speak, and there was another one that was entirely narrated in PowerPoint slides. And was I remember that novel just being very playful mm. and really deliberately engaging with these new technologies. And in The Candy House, she kind of applies the same focus, but with a much narrower perspective. So this novel really is at the heart of it, is social media surveillance, and this idea of externalised memory, and how we unthinkingly give ourselves over to these new technologies. And then what forms any resistance to those kind of corporations taking control of this information might take. And I I, I really enjoyed it, but it, it definitely left me thinking about you know, this idea of the cloud and what we put in the cloud. And if we put things in the cloud, then what what are we left with? And how is this shaping our memories and changing how we relate to the things that we know? I loved that book. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Is there anything in your life that you would actually really welcome a new technology into, or or, or you would look to artificial intelligence to help you with?
0: I struggle. I struggled with this question in our planning doc and maybe I'm just not being very creative I mean the thing I keep coming back to is just how much I love maps (laughs) 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 and directions I love city mapper I think it's the best thing and I use it all the time and the train line and all of these things and I would welcome ever more sophisticated versions of intelligence that helps me arrange travel times and how to get places I don't know.
1: That can intuit your transport needs before you know what they are, right? (laughs) Maybe. I
0: don't, yeah. Something like that. I just, that is my favorite thing about technology. I just, I just am so grateful
1: for it. Yeah. The thing is, well, I I love the maps too. I use them all the time too, but also there's this negative side to them because once you're reliant on them is you lose the ability to meander or get lost or wander aimlessly. You can always find where you are. And like, I think that's I think that's a problem. <laughs> mm,
0: um, I, but I would just spend so much time lost if I didn't have them. You know, I you would just, just carry, always be lost.
1: You carry an A to Z in your pocket.
0: You know, when I moved to London was when the iPhone started. Wow. So you so don't a, a know A to Z, I never is. had an A to Z.
1: So said. I know the streets certain of certain parts of London really well because of the days of having to tear out pages from an A to Z and bring them in my back pocket to figure out where I was going and the parts of London that I have got to know since having smartphones I just don't know as well because I never had to learn the roots so I think it's like it's the cost of convenience right it really is yeah you, you lose some kind of intuitive ability I think I, if, but what if you lack
0: that intuitive ability in the first instance like develop well
1: it not- a bit though
0: When I started driving, I had to print out MapQuest directions because I literally had no, I didn't know how to get places in my own hometown, despite having lived there for 18 years, 16 years.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think you would develop them. I'm not saying that everyone should take away your map (laughs) and watch you struggle and get lost. I'm not saying that at all. But I just think with every positive, there's a negative, right, with tech. I mean, I would love a technology, and this probably exists actually, for staying on top of digital communication because between WhatsApp and texts and DMs and emails and the various social medias I'm on, like it's impossible to stay on top of everything. And I am constantly missing messages and I feel like I'm constantly letting people down. And um, I realize that actually what I really would like as a human secretary, <laughs> that's what I'd like. <laughs> uh, one day, dream big. I know, wouldn't that be good? Anyway, if anyone would like to apply for the position, it's unpaid. <laughs> and it will be a nightmare for you. <laughs> but I will be grateful forever. No, I would never I would never take on an unpaid intern. Good. I'm glad you stated that. <laughs> I just realised that I was saying it. It was like this complete fallacy. I'd like to live in a world where I could employ a secretary... That would be great, where I was earning enough money from my writing to employ a secretary. I don't think that's ever going to happen, but one day we can, we can hope. I'm saying dream big. Yeah, dream big. All right, dream big. We will be back in a minute with our usual cultural recommendations.
0: Right, we are back to talk about some stuff we've done lately that isn't reading. We do do other things besides (laughs) talk about books and read them. And we want to tell you about these things. So, Octavia, what's your first recommendation?
1: Mine is The Debutant by John Ronson, which is a really wild listen. And basically, it's about this woman called Carol Ho from Tulsa, who is this well-heeled young woman. She comes from a, a wealthy family. White woman. She ends up caught up in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing when Timothy McVeigh killed 168 people by blowing up a federal building, which was at the time the worst domestic terror attack in U.S. history. And John Ronson basically digs into this story with his typical slightly offbeat style, and what he discovers is just it's fascinating and it's also completely wild. So basically, Carol came from this wealthy family, very charismatic former debutante, and she became a white supremacist and then she turned informant for the CIA, so that in 1995, she was supposedly spying on Oklahoma's neo-Nazis. However, of course, there are lots of unanswered questions in her story, and the thing that really got Ronson's attention was this rumor that was beginning to circulate you know, a few years ago that Carol had actually had information that might have prevented the bombing, but she wasn't listened to by her handlers. And so he digs into her past and he tries to understand how this woman could have ended up so radicalized by far-right ideology. And, and in the stories you hear about her, it's, it's a gnarly it's really she, she went deep into that neo-Nazi way of thinking and behaving, but it, it is fascinating. And the thing I liked about it so much is in, in classic Ronson style, he resists being judgmental in favor of being curious. And so it just opens up pathways of thought for the listener in a, in a way that's very productive.
0: That sounds great. I love John Ronson. I did not know it existed at all. And I'm so glad you told me about it because I'm going to listen to it.
1: It's unfortunately only on Audible. So you have to be in bed with Amazon, but it's really worth it. Yeah. What's yours? Well, my first recommendation
0: is the film Past Lives.
1: Oh, I really want to see this.
0: Yes. Well, it is not out in, in the UK until late August, I'm are afraid. Are all
1: your recommendations going to be stuff that you were able to enjoy because you were in America. Yes.
0: <laughs> this sucks. This absolutely sucks. <laughs> so anyway, this is not out in the UK until August, as I said. it is. It was out in the US when I went there. So I watched it when I was there. So basically, it's the debut film of the playwright Celine Song, who both wrote and directed it. and it is a film for grown-ups octavia which is what i loved mm-hmm. about it it runs counter to so much of the stuff that's in the cinema at the moment it's it's like unfolds without too much frenetic pace it's about feelings characters really think about their decisions and make adult choices and and it's really beautiful so so basically it's the story of nora who emigrates with her family from South Korea to Canada when she's a child, but she maintains a connection with her childhood sweetheart who's named Hae Sung. And later, when when they've lost touch, he kind of abruptly comes back into her life and she is married with a partner. And it's sort of about this week they spend together and kind of her being forced to reflect upon the life she might have lived with with Hae Sung and what she should do about his reappearance in her life. And it's about all of the lives we could lead and the ones we choose and why we choose them. And it's lovely. It's about things like love and connection, but also the immigrant experience. And the acting is great. Greta Lee, who you might know as sweet birthday baby person yes. from Russian Doll. So she's the star and she's incredible. And yeah, I just, I, I think it's really, if you care about any of those ideas, I just talked about, I really think you should see it. Amazing. What's your second recommendation?
1: Well, this one, so I was just in Marseille where I saw a really fantastic exhibition at the big museum there, Moussem, which is the Museum of Civilizations of Europe and the Mediterranean. And this exhibition is called Fashion Folklore. I know that we may not have many listeners in Marseille and there may not be many listeners who plan to go soon, (laughs) But I wanted to mention it because there are definitely equivalents here in the UK and in the States and in Paris and everywhere else, because it's a, it's an exhibition of clothes. And this one in particular was this collection of folkloric costumes and then the haute couture pieces that were inspired by them and these folkloric techniques. So there were some stunning pieces by fashion houses like Kenzo and Yves Saint Laurent, or Valentino, some extraordinary Paco Raban, like sort of almost space age from the 90s, most of the clothes are from the 60s to the 90s, some a bit later. And they were set next to these incredible embroidered, beaded pieces from like the 19th century from all over Europe. So there was like stunning Hungarian lacework, Portuguese embroidery, French linen, the whole shebang. And it was just so uplifting to see the amazing handiwork of all these artisans from the near and also the distant past. And to see the way that like contemporary fashion speaks to these older techniques and to actually see a museum kind of fully recognizing that what designers are doing now is profoundly rooted in the historical work of usually women, usually kind of communities who are not given the props they deserve for the incredible art that they produce. And so that like that was just, that was wonderful. It was very uplifting. It's also just fabulous to see these incredible outfits. And it felt like the total opposite and a real palate cleanser from the kind of fast fashion, lycra leggings, like whatever bullshit that we're most of us caught up in in the day-to-day jeans and a t-shirt kind of life.
0: That's a nice recommendation. That sounds wonderful. And
1: yeah, I, if I'm in Marseille, I will
0: give it a whirl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second one? Okay. So I did some research and by the time that this show is broadcast, this will be available in the UK. So I'm not just recommending things that you can only
1: see if you're in America,
0: but my second recommendation is the second series of the TV show, The Bear. Oh my God.
1: This is like my most hotly anticipated
0: second series. I'm like dying, waiting for it. I am so interested to hear what you think. So... I really liked the first series of the show, which maybe you recommended. I did, yes. Yeah, which is about this Michelin-level chef who returns home to Chicago to take over the family sandwich shop, which was run by his brother until he killed himself and, and left his brother the shop. And it's a really amazing portrait of life in a kitchen, but there was something that felt a little like performative and, and frankly just stressful about the first season like everyone's always yelling and and I felt like the direction by the writer and showrunner Chris Store is it, it feels a little not amateur but like it shows off a little bit you know you feel like it's it, it's somebody who who got a camera and really wants you to know that they're behind the camera you know in terms of its it's kind of artistry mm-hmm. but I still loved it so I don't know why I'm being so critical anyway I think they really stepped it up in the second season I think it's even better than the first. And it's so exciting. (laughs) Basically. I just, I really enjoyed every second of the second season. The pace unfolds a little more slowly. They spend time exploring a lot of the secondary characters who are just so wonderfully drawn and built out. And also they are all such good actors and they're each kind of given their moment and they just grab it and take it by the shoulders and shake it and I can't extend the metaphor any further without <laughs> really going off the rails, but it's wonderful. It leaves Chicago for a bit, and I don't want to say where, but it goes back in time in really interesting ways, and it's it's wonderful. It's such a beautiful portrait of what it takes to run not just a restaurant but a top restaurant, and of course, it's this beautiful celebration of the city of Chicago. And I didn't love every choice the director made. I still sometimes think it's a little bit over directed but it feels like a show that's developing its own style and growing even deeper in its mythology and its themes and its storytelling. And I'm just so glad that it's back and even better. And you should all check it out.
1: Amazing. I can't wait. Okay, well, that's it. We have wrapped up AI, artificial intelligence, completely and with a nice bow on it. And we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening, everyone.